The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is from Colossians 3, 12-17. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Praise be to Christ. Christ. It's a privilege and honor to be here. Uh, When Scott asked me if I would come and speak about music, I thought... Man, where do you start? What a big topic. It's all over the place in the Bible. And as I thought about music, I thought about Christianity, I thought about the Bible and how it speaks to all of life, I started thinking about these things and how many people I've had speak to me over the years. And I thought in particular about my friend Charlie Peacock. Some of you might know Charlie. He's been a fixture in Nashville for many, many years. And I remember at various times getting to hear him talk about things. And I always walk away with this thought wow, that thing that he just talked about that I thought was like this and I thought I understood pretty well, it's actually so much bigger. So much bigger. I'll give you one example. Um, I I heard him one time define prayer this way. Speaking to our Father about matters of mutual concern. I thought, oh, it, 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 it it covers everything. It's bigger than I ever thought it was. It's not just this like little weird religious thing sort of cordoned off in this part of my life. It actually includes everything, and, and it's about so much more. We come to talk about the Bible this morning and about singing and about music and about this passage in Colossians 3. That's my hope and my prayer, is that we would see that this issue of music and singing is so much bigger than we tend to think it is. Uh, it's, it's bigger than people in the church tend to think it is. We tend to think that it's maybe the warm-up for the sermon, or it kind of passes the time, or it's, it's for entertainment. We think of it that way in the culture as well. For the most part, it's, it's not something that's built into the warp and woof of our life the way it has been for most of human history. We come to this passage in Colossians, we find that Paul says singing is vital for getting the word about Christ to dwell in us richly. So let's dig into this, shall we? Now, as we come to this passage, there's actually a couple other things that we tend to think of in too small of a way. First is this idea of peace. Maybe you've memorized this passage, but I find that this first phrase is very often misunderstood by Christians that I know. And unfortunately, if it's misunderstood by Christians, it's probably misunderstood by those who are outside of the church trying to figure out what Christianity is. That's how it always works, right? What we tend to think of in the church when we read this, the peace of Christ, we tend to think of 
a feeling, a warm, fuzzy, peaceful feeling in our hearts. But that's actually not what Paul's talking about here at all. We know this because there's actually a letter that Paul wrote at the same time that he wrote Colossians. It's a letter to the Ephesians. And often you can get some help in seeing how he expands on an idea in one letter and develops it in the other. And when you go to Ephesians, you find that this idea of peace between God and man is a central importance in understanding what Christianity is about. What Paul says to the Ephesians is there's this great mystery that has now been revealed. Now, in the Bible, the word mystery doesn't mean something that's still mysterious. It means something that was hidden but's now been revealed. And Paul says what's been hidden and is now revealed is that God has always, even before the foundation of the world, intended to make the two that were at warfare, at enmity, one. And he means that in two ways. He means it in the terms of God and man. That God has sent Jesus to live and to die of the place of sinners so that there might be reconciliation between God and man. And when Paul talks about the peace of Christ, he doesn't mean peaceful feelings. He means the objective peace that Christ has wrought between God and man. But he also says in doing that peacemaking, God has done something else. He's brought together Jews and Gentiles who hated each other. And so this peace of Christ is about reconciling man to God and man to man. How dare we reduce it to mere peaceful, easy feelings? And yet that's what we often do. So I went to the Eagles concert a few weeks ago. <laughs> and I was reminded, oh, I love the Eagles. It was an extraordinary, extraordinary concert. And uh, I, I was reminded of when I was in high school and we literally used to sing the hymn, Amazing Grace, to the tune of Peaceful Easy Feeling by the Eagles. Not only that, but we actually sang the chorus of Peaceful Easy Feeling in between the verses with a clever little change, which is what Christians do, right? Um, you know, uh, it's, it's, I've got a peaceful, easy feeling. I know you won't let me down because I'm already standing on solid ground. That's the Christian version. It's gross, right? But it's also, it, also trivialize, it also trivializes amazing grace. You know what Paul says grace is in Ephesians 2? He says grace is God making dead people alive. He says you were dead in your sins and transgressions, but God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. It's by grace you have been saved so that no one can boast. Do you know why grace and the gospel brings mankind together because the things that keep us apart are the things we tend to boast in, whether it's about ourselves personally or even about our cultures. You know, we can boast about our cultures and look down on whole groups of people because they're not like us and they're not as good as us. But Paul says the peace of Christ brings unity between God and man and between man and man. And that's the sense here in Colossians 3, right? It's intertwined here. The peace of Christ must rule in our hearts so that unity in the body of Christ can happen. Do you see? It's so much bigger than a mere feeling. But I think one of the reasons we think it's a feeling is this other misunderstood phrase in Colossians 3. And that's the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts. For a lot of people, they think of the heart as the place where your emotions come from. Right? 
But in the Bible, your emotions come from your bowels. It's true. It's why we don't have biblical Valentine's Day cards, okay? The heart, in the Bible's way of speaking, is the center of who you are. It, it's the center of who you are. It's, it's everything you are. It's what you find beautiful. It, it, it controls what you do, how you feel, how you live, the decisions you make, the things you fear and the things you long for. And what Paul's saying here is that the peace of Christ, the objective peace that Christ has wrought, should rule at the center of our beings. But he actually goes farther than that. And he says, your, the you here is plural. So it's not just about being gospel-driven, which is what Paul's talking about here. Maybe you've heard that phrase. It's not just about being gospel-driven as an individual, though that's important. But Paul says the gospel must drive your community and everything it's about. That's what it means for it to rule in our hearts. And again, since as members of one body, you were called to peace. Do you see the way he's connecting these ideas of peace and unity? And be thankful. Why? Because everything you are and everything you have is because of what he's done. And thankfulness is a great antidote to pride that keeps us apart from one another. So then he goes on, let the message of Christ. Some translations say the word of Christ. Best translated, I think, the word about Christ. He's saying the same thing in a different way. Let the peace that Christ has wrought rule at the center of your community. Let the gospel dwell among you, again, plural, richly. Richly. Not just some idea in your head, but something that you love and cherish that warms your soul. And how is that going to happen? Paul says you have to sing. Now that's the point at which you might be a little surprised because we don't think of singing as being that important. We think of being gospel driven as really important. We talk about it a lot. We think about the peace of Christ bringing unity between people that hate one another is being important, and all those things are so important. But we don't think of singing as being integral to that, do we? I mean, Paul, why didn't he say, you know, for the word of Christ to dwell in you richly, you need to memorize the word of Christ? Well, he could have. It's a good idea. Not opposed to that at all. He could have said, you need to learn your theology better. Learn the history of the church better. All things that I think are wonderful things to do, by the way. And one of the reasons I'm thankful for adult Sunday school and children's Sunday school, they're substantive, Right? But that's not what he says. He says, for the word of Christ, the gospel, to dwell among you, your community, richly, you need to sing. Why might that be the case? What's so important about singing? Maybe it's not just a peripheral little thing. Well, St. Augustine, North African church father who lived back in the 5th century, said this, which I think is helpful. He said, he who sings prays twice. He who sings prays twice. What did he mean by that? What he's trying to get at is that singing intensifies whatever it is we're doing. It's one thing to say thanks to God. It's another thing to praise him in song. It's one thing to say, I'm not, I'm sad today. It's another thing to sing the blues, right? Singing intensifies everything, whether it's praise or praise or lament. And God says, for you, the gospel to dwell among your community richly, it's important that you sing. Why? Because singing is an embodied experience. 
Singing helps us remember that we're not just brains on sticks. I love that phrase from Jamie Smith. He says, one of the problems with a lot of people is they think that all they are are thinking beings. But we're actually shaped by our loves and we're embodied people. What it means to be human is you're more than just the ideas that you have. And so Paul says, for the word to dwell in you richly, you need to sing. Because singing is this embodied experience. Literally, the sound wells up from the gut, goes through, resonates. Isn't that a wonderful word? It means it sets off sympathetic vibrations. It comes up through you. You shape it through your mouth, and it comes out. You hear it in your ears, but also all those around you hear it, and you hear them. So singing is so important for helping us remember that Christianity is not just about ideas in your head. It's similar to the Lord's Supper. God counts to keep reminding us that to be human means that you're more than just what you think about. You're an embodied person put in a world that God has created with all kinds of God-glorifying potential. And singing is formative because singing is a rich human experience. It's not just a a little secondary thing, but you know what's sad is that for so many years, Christians didn't sing together in church. I don't know if you know this or not. The Council of Laodicea, AD 365, the year 365, banned congregational singing. They thought it would be better if the trained choirs of priests did the singing and the people just listened. I, I, I think we continually face that problem of people just being spectators and not joining in. Now, I would, absolutely, you might be here saying, well, I'm just kind of checking this out. Like, I'm not going to get up there and sing, and that's fine. We're glad you're here. But I hope part of what you understand about Christianity is that we sing. I know that's kind of a weird thing. It is. Like, there are not many places in our culture where we gather to sing anymore. If you worked for IBM in the 60s, you started every day singing the company song. It reminded you who you were and what mattered. I'm not sure we do that very much anymore. I guess people, you know, sing at at, at pubs occasionally. I know people were singing at the Eagles concert, every word, every song, right? You know, they might sing, you know, Rocky Top at UT football games. I don't think they really sing at Vanderbilt football games. I've never been to one, but at least I hear that they, it's not nearly as raucous an atmosphere. Um, but, But it's a weird thing. I was thinking about this when my students invite one of their friends to come to an RUF meeting. How do they describe it to someone who's never been to church? It must sound like a really strange thing. Well, hey, come to this little place on on Tuesday nights, and we're going to sing songs together with kind of weird language, and then Kevin's going to talk about the Bible. It's just an odd thing. I don't think we realize how things are just strange, but that's what happened in the Middle Ages, is that people didn't sing. They just kind of sat and they listened. They lost this communal bonding, formative experience. John Huss in the 1300s did a lot of Reformation kinds of things. And one of the things he did is he reintroduced congregational singing. Do you know what happened to John Huss? He got burned at the stake in 1315 at the Council of Constance. And the Council of Constance said this, If laymen are forbidden from preaching the Bible, how much more are they forbidden from singing? When Luther and Calvin began to to work and bring the gospel back into their communities and try to work out how is it going to work its way through and in us, 
They were coming into situations where nobody was singing and hadn't been singing congregational for a thousand years. And they spent tremendous effort and time working on that because they understood that for the gospel to dwell in us richly, we need to do more than preach and listen to sermons, right? Singing matters. And it's always been that way. Every time of revival has produced new outpouring of church song. Martin Luther knew it. He said, actually, you know, well, he put together a little, a little hymn book. And 1517 is when he um, posted the 95 theses on the, on the door of the church in Wittenberg. And everybody's like, that's when the Reformation started. Robin Lever, who's a, a church historian and Lutheran uh, scholar, says it may have started in 1517, but the Reformation really took root in 1523. You know what happened in 1523? The first Lutheran hymn book was published. It had eight hymns, eight hymns. But Luther knew, look, I've only been able to come up with a few, but we've got to start. And he issued a call in the preface there for other German poets to help join the work to noise and spread the gospel abroad. That's what we're about. See, we come in here to to sing, to be shaped, to be formed, to have the reality begin to transform us. What kinds of songs give us courage to stand. You know, I think the answer I would give is songs that are more honest about struggle and more explicit about the gospel. And you have to know that's what's going on here in Colossians. Like Paul wouldn't have to talk about the word needs to dwell in you richly so that you'll be unified if they were already unified and living it out so well. Like he he writes to them to a group that's struggling to live out the gospel the way it should be lived out. And he says, why don't you try singing? And why don't you try singing songs that get the gospel richly rooted in you? And then we need songs that are explicit about the gospel. Honestly, I had a 20th anniversary um, celebration a few years ago for RUF. I've been doing that ministry for 23 years. And sad to say, I've been preaching the gospel for a long time, but not one of those alumni that came back said, oh, Kevin, I remember this sermon you gave one time just changed my life. But everybody, every alumni talked about the songs at one point or another. There really is something about that. Now, let me just say one more thing about why that might be the case. It's not just that we're human. It's that we live in a world full of God-glorifying potential. We use the call to worship from Psalm 19. Psalm 19 says that the whole creation is proclaiming God's glory. In other words, the whole creation, everything that is, is preaching at us about who God is. Do you understand that? Do you know the implications of that for all of life, for your work, for the way we think about art and music? It means that everything, every piece of music is made with stuff that God has made and stamped with meaning. And look at where the story ends in Revelation 21. It's not just that God created that way. The consummation of all things involves the kings of all the earth bringing their splendor, their glory into the heavenly city. And the heavenly city Uh, John tells us in Revelation, will have no unclean thing in it. The only way to make sense is to think that somehow more than just souls are being redeemed. Culture itself, and why not? God created a whole world full of God-glorifying potential that takes people from every race, tribe, tongue, and nation to begin to bring out some of that God-glorifying potential. And one day, it will be in the heavenly city. Isn't that a glorious thing? It means that music matters way more than you might think. 
It means that actually people that may not confess faith in Jesus are hearing God speaking. And they're actually interacting with him whenever they write a song, whether they know it or not. And here's the thing I found. They often hear things that Christians have filtered out. It's worth listening to. Because it doesn't just come from nowhere. It comes from a world that God has made and stamped with meaning. That's why we're going to talk about it. You might be like, oh, okay, we're going to do this little forum, I guess, about music because it's Nashville and we want to try and attract people that are interested in music. No, it's because it matters. It matters way more than we think in the church and outside in the church. What kind of songs help us stand? We're going to sing one here at the end. Let us love and sing and wonder. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, wrote this hymn. And I love that he added that word, wonder. Because wonder reminds me of what I always would learn from Charlie Peacock. That there's more to whatever topic it is that I'm thinking about than I realize. Uh, one of the greatest verses, Dr. Filson and I, we, we agree on a lot of things, but we really, uh, you know, extra agree about this. Verse 4 of Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder is the greatest verse ever written in English hymnody. And it says this, Let us wonder. Grace and justice join and point to mercy's store. That means the storehouse of mercy. When through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. That's the kind of song that gets the peace that Christ has wrought at the center of your being. That's the kind of thing that you can get rooted in your heart so you can go out into the world and say, you know, my value is not based on what I contribute to this company. Like justice smiles at me, not because I'm so good looking or not because I'm such a faithful spouse. Justice smiles because of what Jesus did. And let that rule in my life today. Let that rule in every meeting I have, in everything I dream about, in everything I fear. Let the peace that Christ has wrought, the fact that justice smiles, rule and drive the way I live today and our community. So we need to sing songs like that. And I love that he said wonder because you never get the depths of that. You never reach the depths of justice smiles and ask no more because the more I think about it, the more that just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't. If you ever lose your wonder at that, you're in deep weeds as we say. <laughs> so let's sing and love and wonder. <laughs>